Hello, and welcome back to ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child and encourage you that growth is possible. Each week, we offer the latest in autism research along with other information to help you make informed decisions about treatment options so you can create a better quality of life for your family. I'm your host, Kat Lee. And on today's show, we know as parents that something happens to our babies. What goes wrong? When does it happen? In part one and part two of our podcast series, Dr. Gutstein discusses the studies of the development of typical infants as compared to those who would be diagnosed with ASD, and that the early months research showed no differences. Now what is striking is that when these researchers studied the same infants six, seven, eight months later, they saw a dramatic difference. The main finding that has been replicated a lot is what is called the social passivity of these infants that go on to have autism. Social passivity really means that they are acting more like children who act at four to five months. So. With typical infants, we see on the one hand growth-seeking, and we see parents growth-promoting. And in typical development, it comes together, very nice and mutually supportive. Unfortunately, not so with children diagnosed with ASD. Dr. Steve Gutstein continues. Now, in the first year, already the bonding relationship becomes crucial, continues after that. But in the first year, guiding is developing, the inf- continuing to develop the infant's agency, personal agency, and helping them to become self-regulated. Even though they're still very dependent on parents, they're, they're learning to regulate their attention, their, even their emotions to not be so reactive. And of course, their motor regulation, their motor planning. And also... The guiding relationship is focused on developing the infant's, what we call, interpersonal agency, their ability to influence others in their world. And that includes taking on more responsibility for their joint engagements, to take more active roles in some of those infant games. And a third important area is to develop this budding sense in the infant of self, of themselves in a differentiated way from others. I can do things. I'm, I have some capabilities. I can influence my world. Also, what guiding does, what parent guides do, is they support their infants in their desire to explore and experiment and practice and to engage with challenges, to moderate challenges. So what, what parent guides are doing is they're also they're creating these positive experiences, but they're also spending an enormous amount of time responding to the infant's own growth-seeking and trying to shape that and guide that in a positive direction. So, together, in that guiding relationship, infants and parents, they provide one another. You can't really separate who's doing what with a variety of ways that are opportunities for development. And you're going to see experience sharing, co-participating in joint activities, social referencing, practicing for mastery, exploring and experimenting, and finally observing. You don't want to diminish that. Infants spend a lot of time in observation. So, infants on their own, and I want to emphasize this, this is something you don't teach them. None of these things are things that parents teach them. Infants initiate 
what we call experience sharing. So you'll see here, and this is again my grandson, who on his own chooses to engage with his world in an agentic way, but periodically wants to check in and share that experience with his grandfather on his own in a very joyful way, in a way of saying, hey, look at me, look what I'm doing. It's not because I taught him or I'm prompting him. It's part of that built-in drive of being a human being, right? Now, infants also are very enthusiastic to, starting at around seven, six, seven months, to become active in these early infant games. So I'll show you a little segment with a little infant named Emma, where you can see that in her earlier months, playing peekaboo, which is a typical infant game, she was just the passive recipient of it. Her father was doing all the active work of getting the game going and maintaining it. Her, her job is there. She's just laying there responding. But by seven months now, she has a much more active role in the same game. She has actually the more active role than her father. She's become a very powerful agent and she has to take responsibility. So she gets the pleasure of being active, but she also has to take the responsibility for her active role, which requires some work on her part. Right. So what happens is that infants are very enthusiastic about accepting those invitations to become more active. And they're not interested anymore in being passive recipients in any kind of game and having things done to them. They want to be co-participants. And that's why we use the term co-participation in those activities. All right. Another thing, remember, we talked about social referencing in the other slides and starting in the second half of the year. Infants, as I said, start to move around. They start to physically separate from their parents and explore their world. And as part of that process, they're going to encounter things that leave them feeling unsure about whether they should engage with it, whether, you know, it's dangerous, whether they should, you know, move on and come back or go back to the parent. They're not always going to be sure of that. There's, they encounter the experience of what we call uncertainty. So something isn't dangerous immediately or threatening but they're not sure it's safe or they're not sure they should do anything with it. And that's a very important milestone. And what we see is that infants on their own, without being taught, they, when they encounter that feeling of uncertainty, they look back and engage with the parent. And they don't necessarily communicate. They just look to see parents' facial expressions. And they use those expressions to make decisions about whether they should engage or whether they should withdraw. And we use that as, we call that term social referencing. And again, nobody teaches them this. This isn't so much of a skill, it's part of that built-in growth-seeking program. Another thing we see is that infants become very involved in what we call social observation, as well as non-social observation. But because they now have control of their attention more, they can actually spend more time and focus in on things that have interest to them. And for typically developing infants, they privilege the social world. Their attentional system is tuned so that they really look at other children, other people, but especially other children, children closer to them. And you can, when you watch an infant start, starting at seven and eight months to observe, you really see a serious sort of scientific observation in their face. The, you know, um, and they can spend enormous amounts of time. When I'm with my grandson, for instance, he spends, and we go to a playground, he spends at least half, if not more, of his time and effort 
in observing what's going on around him, the other children you know, in that setting. That observation kicks in on its own. We don't tell them to observe. We don't have to point out things, although we do, to facilitate that. But we don't have to start it up as part of growth-seeking. They are very motivated to watch and observe without us teaching them to do that. Okay? Our job is to facilitate it. We can enhance it. We can provide opportunities, make it easier for them to do that. But we don't have to get it started. The response to novelty becomes really exciting at this age. And you can see the children just love the idea that something they, they just haven't seen before, even if it's a parent acting in a way that they've never acted before. It's the height of their, their world. So here's a good example of mom acting silly and the infant just loving it. Playing basketball. Two <laughs> points. see this that they it's just this strong desire oh this is something i haven't seen before this is something i've never seen mommy do this is new i just love it they're just hungry for that it's so reinforcing for them it's so powerful and as i said by the end of the first year growth seeking includes challenge seeking my grandson decided on his own he wanted to try to walk our dog which is really much too hard for him but i wanted to give him an experience of doing that and again the goal here is not for him to learn how to walk a dog he's a little bit young for that but to have the sense of mastering a challenge something that was very difficult for him holding on to that leash and being able to at least move several feet and feel that sense of agency i would never have imagined uh, that being something you know to do with him so sometimes we're inviting more often we're Facilitating, we're enhancing, we're making something possible that they're starting out themselves to want to do this. And we have to maintain a, a nice balance of challenge, but not so much challenge, right? So, so that the child will always fail, but not to remove the potential of failure. So even, but even when the child fails, but our, as a guide, what we want to do is we would provide what I'm going to call a safe landing. We don't want failure to lead to injury or to demolishing their sense of self, but to the idea that either we adjust the task to make it a bit less difficult, or we, in a very normal way, encourage them to try again. And we, we often don't have to do that. They'll often do that. And as a result of that, they'll build what we call resilience, that sense that they can pursue something and persist at something, even when it's frustrating, and as well as cementing their sense of the importance of their guiding relationship with us in, in terms of facilitating their growth. Now, there's one more point I want to get to, and then we're going to go to ASD. And that point is that no matter how we guide, that mental growth is always going to be disorganizing. And developmental scientists know that, that when we grow, when we learn to see the world in new ways, which is what mental growth is about, and see ourselves in new ways and see ourselves with others, it is, there's going to be a period of disruption. There's going to be a period of having organized our understanding of the world in one way. We come across something that challenges that. That's what challenge is, a mental challenge. 
And there's going to be a temporary period where we realize that our old way of seeing the world just doesn't fit anymore. But we don't yet have a new way of doing it or seeing ourselves or seeing others. And so there's inevitably a period of what we call disorganization. I mean, internal sense of my way of organizing, making meaning in the world has been somewhat disrupted. Not everything, not every everything I believe that some piece of how I see the world doesn't make sense anymore. And for infants to be able to grow mentally, they have to be able to sustain their effort, their engagement during that period to, with our help to reach a place where we, of reorganization, where we get to the point where we say, ah, okay, now I got it. Here's how it fits. Here's this new way. It's not that different. Here's a new way. Now, this happens pretty naturally with typically developing infants, right? And so you might not even notice it. But what's interesting is that it's not that we do this to infants. We're not the agents of this. Infants, as I say, through their own growth-seeking actions, become the primary agents. They disorganize themselves. They seek out these challenges. They seek out the disorganization. And they become, hopefully, see themselves as the agents of their reorganization. Even though we help them, we want them to experience themselves as capable of doing this over and over and over again so that this process of mental growth becomes rewarding to them, something they pursue, something that they're encouraged that they can do. It becomes part of their agency, and that's what we do see happening. By, by, by one-year-olds, we see them becoming very much um, motivated to pursue this mental growth process, even though they're going to experience a temporary disorganization that does not deter them one bit from doing that. So, mental, remember this, mental growth is inherently disorganized. There's no way around it. Thank you so much, Dr. Gutstein, and thank you for joining us for ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And join us in the continued journey as we encourage you that growth is possible. I'm your host, Kat Lee. See you next time.